hopes to be in the top two percentile, not in the bottom half. In August 2007, we had about $9 billion in gross exposure in this strategy. I am sitting there, and I see LIBOR suddenly jump 10 points. This had never happened in my trading career. I thought, this just feels very bad and scary. 10 basis points doesn't sound like that much. Yes, but it was for no reason at all. I looked at some bank balance sheets, leveraged statistics. One UK bank was 60 times leveraged. Its balance sheet was 7% of world GDP and over 150% of UK GDP. Banks wouldn't lend to each other because they had too much exposure. It didn't feel right. A couple of weeks later, I went to give a talk at an investor conference in Lugano. Whenever I give a talk on global markets, I never write anything down. I just speak off the cuff. As I am presenting the speech, I find myself giving this huge rant about how I believe there was going to be a global credit crunch. I said, asking people in the credit market how they feel is like asking someone who has jumped out of the 50th floor window how he feels as he passes floor 10. He is currently all right, but he's not going to be soon. I heard myself coming out with a stream of consciousness. You didn't plan this talk? I never plan talks. I went on and on about how the credit markets are ready to implode. There are about 200 people in the room. When I finished, there was dead silence. They really thought I had gone off the deep end. What did you predict was going to happen? I said there was going to be a total credit crunch, an equity market meltdown, and a flight to quality bonds. Had you adjusted your portfolio to reflect these expectations? No, it just dawned on me as I was giving the speech. I went back to the office and thought, $9 billion of stocks going into a credit crunch. I don't want any of this crap. I got the fund manager into my office and said, Look, August was not that great. The strategy was down about 5% in August. I continued, Honestly, I don't believe in this anymore. There's going to be a credit crunch, and the stuff you've got is going to be absolutely toxic. Let's shut the strategy down. Even though it was market neutral? Yes, because I was afraid of liquidity. Actually, August 2007 was the month when many statistical arbitrage in some market-neutral funds got killed. A 5% loss for a market-neutral fund that month is not really that extreme. I have no appetite for losses. Our discretionary strategy's worst peak-to-trough drawdown in over 10 years was less than 5%, and this strategy lost approximately 5% in one month. One thing that brings my blood to a boiling point is when an absolute return guy starts talking about his return relative to anything. My response was, you are not relative to anything, my friend. You can't be in the relative game just when it suits you, and in the absolute game just when it suits you. You are in the absolute return game, and the fact that you use the word relative means that I don't want you anymore. What made you so convinced of an impending credit crunch? It was just the huge excess leverage in the system everywhere you looked, and when LIBOR jumped by 10 basis points, it was like seeing the first crack. What happened to LIBOR liquidity after that point? It went straight down. The LIBOR OIS spread started to widen. What is the OIS? The OIS is the overnight index swap, which is a weighted average of overnight lending rates. The LIBOR OIS spread reflects the illiquidity premium. If you lend money for 90 days, you demand a premium because you can't get it right back. If I lend you cash for 90 days, I want to be paid more than if I lend it to you overnight. I could lend you money overnight for 90 days, but I have the option to break it at any time. If I give up my option to break the loan, I want to be compensated. The market price for the option to break, that is the LIBOR OIS spread, used to be almost nothing because people were so confident. Then suddenly, when liquidity dried up, the option to break was worth 200 basis points, 
and then more than 300 basis points. In fact, you couldn't even get 90-day money at the end. Anyway, when this crack appeared in the market, I knew I didn't want to have equity exposure. So during the next six weeks, we liquidated the entire $9 billion of exposure. The strategy was shut, and the money was sent back to investors. We watched the markets very carefully, and in early 2008, I transferred a vast proportion of the firm's money into two-year treasury notes. I got rid of all the money market funds. I put all the traders into a wind-down of counterparty exposure. We dumped outright exposure to every bank possible and went maximum long fixed income. The systematic trend-following strategy was consistently moving into a similar position. It started reversing from long to short in equities and commodities and going hugely long in fixed income. Again, it was all the same trade, wasn't it? So when the market meltdown hit later in 2008, you were positioned perfectly. In 2008, Bluecrest made the most amount of money for its investors in its history up to that point. Even though we were making loads of money, many of our investors redeemed simply because they couldn't get their cash from anyone else. We were making about $500 million a month and in numerous months paying out about $1 billion. It was a bit depressing. It hardly sounds depressing. The main thing is that you were making money when everyone else was losing. You didn't have to worry about the money. The money would always come back if you have the performance. It did. Also, it helped a great deal that we didn't gate. When investors started returning to hedge funds, we got an unusually large share of the net investments. According to Deutsche Bank research in 2010, net inflows into hedge funds totaled $55 billion. We got $1.09 out of those inflows. You not only did very well in 2008, but you also did well in 2009 when markets rebounded strongly. What were the trades that accounted for the 2009 gains? We faded a lot of the very big call and put skews in the market. The out-of-the-money strikes were insanely expensive, so we shorted a lot out-of-the-money options and protected ourselves with offsetting long positions in the at-the-money options. The tails were enormously fat because of what had happened in 2008. The break-even points on the shorts in the out-of-the-money strikes were so crazy that you needed to have another major crisis to come anywhere near losing money on the position. And I didn't think we were going to have another crisis six months after the 2008 crisis. Generals fight the last war. Speculators trade the last market. How have you managed to keep your risk so incredibly restrained through all types of markets? I talk about macro themes a lot because they are fun to talk about, but it is the risk management that is the most important thing. The risk control is all bottom-up. I structure the business right from the get-go so that we would have lots of diversification. For example, on the fixed income side, I hire specialists. I have a specialist in Scandinavian rates, a specialist in the short end, a specialist in volatility surface arbitrage, a specialist in euro long-dated trading, an inflation specialist, and so on. They all get a capital allocation. Typically, I will hand out about $1.5 billion for every $1 billion we manage because people don't use their entire risk allocation all the time. I assume, on average, they will use about two-thirds. The deal is that if a trader loses 3%, he has to give me back half of his trading line. If he loses another 3% of the remaining half, that's it. His book is auctioned. All the traders are shown his book and take what they want into their own books, and anything that is left is liquidated. What happens to the trader at that point? Is he out on the street? It depends on how he reached his limit. I'm not a hard-nosed person. I don't say, you lost money, get out. 
it's possible someone gets caught in a storm. A trader might have some very reasonable Japanese positions on, and then there is a nuclear accident, and he loses a lot of money. We might recapitalize him, but it depends. It is also a matter of gut feel. How do I feel about the guy? Is the 3% loss measured from the allocation starting level? Yes, it is definitely not a trailing stop. We want people to scale down if they are getting it wrong and scale up if they are getting it right. If a guy has a $100 million allocation and makes $20 million, he then has $23 million to his stop point. Do you move that stop up at any point? No, it rebases annually. So every January 1st, traders start off with the same 3% stop point. Yes, unless they carry over some of their P&L. One year, one of my guys made about $500 million of profits. He was going to get a huge incentive check. I said to him, do you really want to be paid out on the entire $500 million? How about I pay you on $400 million and you carry over $100 million so you still have a big line? He said, yeah, that's cool, I'll do that. So he would have to lose that $100 million plus 3% of the new allocation before the first stop would kick in. Your structure of cutting a trader's book on successive 3% losses builds asymmetry into the performance. The downside is limited, but the upside is unlimited. In fact, you are structuring traders like they are options. Yes, completely. In addition to the broad diversification and the tight 3%, 3%, two-tiered risk constraint on each trader, are there any other elements to the risk management strategy? We have a seven-person risk management team. What are they looking for? The key thing they are monitoring for is a breakdown in correlation. Wouldn't it be the other way around? Wouldn't higher correlation increase risk? No, because most of our positions are spreads. So lower correlations would increase the risk of the position. The most dangerous risks are spread risks. If I assume that IBM and Dell have a 0.95 correlation, I can put on a large spread position with relatively small risk. But if the correlation drops to 0.50, I could be wiped out in 10 minutes. It is when the spread risks blow up that you find that you have much more risk than you thought. Controlling correlations is the key to managing risk. We look at risk in a whole range of different ways. What else does the risk management team look for? They stress test the positions for all sorts of historical scenarios. They also scan portfolios to search for any vulnerabilities and positions that could impact performance. They literally ask the traders, if you were going to drop $10 million, where would it come from? And the traders will know. A trader will often have some position in his book that is a bit spicy, and he will know what it is. So you just ask him to tell you. Most of what you get in the vulnerabilities and position reports, you already know anyway. We would hope that our risk monitoring systems would have caught 95% of it. It is just a last check. Anything else on the risk side? Being long volatility is great protection against all scenarios. Typically, we are neutral to long volatility, and I hate shorting out-of-the-money strikes. We made an exception in 2009 because, as we discussed earlier, the out-of-the-money options were very overpriced, and we hedged them with long-in-the-money positions. I expected the out-of-the-money positions to roll off valueless, and they did. You have picked a lot of traders in your career. What do you look for when you hire a trader? I want market makers, people who know that anything can happen. The type of guy I don't want is an analyst who has never traded. The type of person who does a calculation on a computer, figures out where a market should be, puts on a big trade, gets caught up in it, and doesn't stop out. And the market is always wrong, he's not. 
Market makers know that the market is always right. You are wrong if you are losing money for any reason at all. Market makers have that drilled into their head. They know that value is irrelevant in times of market stress. It's all about positions. They understand that markets will trade against positions. They get it. It is built into their books. It colors the way they think. I look for the type of guy in London who gets up at 7 o'clock on Sunday morning when his kids are still in bed and logs onto a poker site so that he can pick off the U.S. drunks coming home on Saturday night. I hired a guy like that. He usually clears five or ten grand every Sunday morning before breakfast, taking out the drunks playing poker, because they're not very good at it, but their confidence has gone up a lot. That's the type of guy you want. Someone who understands an edge. Analysts, on the other hand, don't think about anything else other than how smart they are. But of course, on the systematic trend side, you would want analysts. That's a completely different world. I'm talking about the human discretionary trading. I'm talking about a different type of analyst, market macro analysts who do their research and come up with a theory. I can give great example to illustrate your point. I mention a particular hedge fund manager I know, who I think is brilliant, and who was early and right in calling major macro themes, yet did poorly trading off his correct ideas. There are a lot of people like that. There are a lot of people that, if you listen to their ideas, you can make more money off their thinking than they can. I troll around. It's a treasure hunt for information. I talk to lots of people. Every now and then, someone says something, and I know I'm going to make much more money off of it than they will. There's a big difference between shooting wine glasses at 20 yards and shooting a wine glass pointing a gun back at you. I want guys who, when they put on a good trade, immediately start thinking about what they could put on against it. They just have the paranoia. Market makers get derailed in crises far less often than analysts. I hired an analyst one time who was a very smart guy. I probably made 50 times more money on his ideas than he did. I hired an economist once, which was the biggest mistake ever. He lasted only a few months. He was very dogmatic. He thought he was always right. The problem always comes down to ego. You find that analysts and economists have big egos, which just gets in the way of making money because they can never admit that they are wrong. What percent of the people you give money to work out? A very high percentage. Market makers are just reliable. One trader who didn't work out was the fixed income analyst I mentioned before, the only analyst I hired. I really liked him, and I made a lot of money on his ideas, but he couldn't keep his car on the road. Maybe you should have kept him on just for his ideas. I would actually have been happy to have him stay, but he just got too disillusioned. He decided he just wanted to be a school teacher and get some sense of accomplishment by doing social good. So what was his failing? Did he get the trends right but couldn't trade? He was very good at identifying relative value opportunities and mispricings, but he had no idea about macro. You can be as smart as you like about analyzing instruments but there is no hedge against being wrong. If you think rates are going up when they're going down, I don't care what trade you've done, you're going to lose money. You might lose less if you've been particularly clever about how you implemented the trade, but you're still going to lose. What other traders didn't work out? There were three market makers we hired that didn't work out. One flatlined, he just became gun-shy, and left. The other two lost money. Was there anything different about the traders who didn't work out versus the majority who did? Both the ex-market makers who blew up became way too invested in their positions. Their ego got in the way. 
They just didn't want to be wrong, and they stayed in their positions. What about the firm's risk monitoring? Well, they just hit their stops. I don't interfere with traders. A trader is either a standalone producer or gone. If I start micromanaging a trader's position, it then becomes my position. Why, then, am I paying him such a large percentage of the incentive fee? In your own trading book, what is the breakdown between directional and relative value trades? It completely depends. Sometimes I have no directional trades on, and sometimes directional trades dominate my book. Basically, I like buying stuff cheap and selling it at fair value. How you implement a trade is critical. I develop a macro view about something, but then there are 20 different ways I can play it. The key question is, which way gives me the best risk-slash-return ratio? My final trade is rarely going to be a straight long or short position. How would you characterize yourself as a trader? I don't have any tolerance for trading losses. I hate losing money more than anything. Losing money is what kills you. It is not the actual loss. It's the fact that it messes up your psychology. You lose the bullets in your gun. What happens is you put on a stupid trade, lose $20 million in 10 minutes, and take the trade off. You feel like an idiot, and you're not in the mood to put on anything else. Then the elephant walks past you while your gun's not loaded. It's amazing how annoyingly often that happens. In this game, you want to be there when the great trade comes along. It's the 80-20 rule of life. In trading, 80% of your profits come from 20% of your ideas. How do you avoid or minimize losses? I don't trade unless I've done all the work and really have a view. If I enter a trade, and the minute I put it on I feel uncomfortable, I will just turn around and get right out. Also, I look at each trade in my book every day and ask myself the question, would I enter this trade today at this price? If the answer is no, then the trade is gone. Most of the trades that I do stop myself out of, I stop out because of time rather than because of a loss. If I really love the trade and get strongly positioned, and then a month later it still hasn't moved, alarm bells start ringing in my head. I think to myself, that is a really great idea you have, but the market is just not playing ball. What do you look for to make a trade? There are three things you need to make money in a market. You need a decent fundamental story, a good trend that looks like it will carry on and the market handling news the way you think it should. Bull markets ignore any bad news, and any good news is a reason for a further rally. Can you think of an example where the market response to the news was counter to what you expected and impacted your trade? In 2009, I was long two-year notes, short ten-year notes one year forward, looking for the yield curve to widen, and a lot of news came out that I thought would hurt me. One news item after another, I saw the screen and thought, I'm going to get screwed in this position. But I didn't. After a number of these instances, I thought the yield curve just can't get any flatter no matter what comes out. So I quadrupled my position. It was a great trade. The spread went from 25 basis points to 210, although I got out at 110. Any other examples where the market action was the catalyst for a trade? When the whole debt fiasco in Europe started to unfold, the euro plunged from 1.45 to 1.19. Everyone was bearish, and so was I. I thought, I am in this trade. I have made a lot of money. It is going down to 1.00. I should increase my position. I had drunk the Kool-Aid along with everyone else. As I'm looking at the screen, the euro suddenly trades back up to 1.21. That should not have happened. The ex-market maker part of my brain starts thinking, everyone has the trade on. Everyone believes. Everyone who was long euro is now out. 
There is still a trade surplus. Wouldn't it just be a disaster for everyone if the euro suddenly went back up again? Was there any news that triggered the rebound in the euro? No, it was just the price action combined with a consensus. That was enough to get me out. I like to know what the consensus view is because you really do make the most money when the consensus shifts. How do you get the consensus? It is not easy to get. If you ask people their position, they're not exactly going to tell you, are they? My favorite question to ask people is, what is your opinion? The minute you ask people for their opinion, they feel important. If I ask a hedge fund manager for his opinion on where the 30-year bond will be trading in three months' time, and he starts talking about factors that will push interest rates up, I know that he is short bonds because the correlation between his three-month forecast and his current position is going to be 100%. There is no doubt about that. If he was long, he would have picked some plausible story about why rates should go down. It's amazing how much information you can get about people's positions by simply asking them about their opinions. Have there been any situations where the market abruptly reversed direction and you were positioned the wrong way in meaningful size? If so, how did you handle it? I once went on a trip with ARK, which is a charity I sponsor, to help design a feeding program for children, which has turned out to be a great success, reaching 60,000 children. At the time, I had a massive long position in European interest rate futures. While I was on the flight to South Africa, the European Central Bank, ECB, hiked rates very unexpectedly. It was a massive hit. It was probably the only time I got an ECB call wrong. As soon as I landed, I got a phone call from an assistant telling me the ECB had just hiked rates and asking me what I wanted to do. How much are we down, I asked. About $70 million to $80 million, he answered. I said, if they started hiking, they won't stop at 25 basis points. I can see this trade turning into a $250 million loss by week's end. Dump everything aggressively. Take the price to a place where it trades. When I am wrong, the only instinct I have is to get out. If I was thinking one way, and now I can see it was a real mistake, then I'm probably not the only person in shock, so I better be the first one to sell. I don't care what the price is. In this game, you have to have an option to keep 20% of your P&L this year, but you also want to own the serial option of being able to do that every year. You can't be blowing up. What mistakes do you think traders make, not necessarily the traders working with you, that get them into trouble? I think the two biggest mistakes traders make is that they don't do enough homework, and they are a bit too casual about risk. Yes, I know you've heard it a thousand times, but risk control really is critical to trading success. According to Platt, it is the most important thing. And Platt is a master of risk control. I hate losing money more than anything, he says, and that aversion strongly colors his trading approach. The principle of minimizing losses permeates Platt's trading habits. Risk management begins with trade implementation. Platt will express a trading theme, say an expectation that interest rates will decrease, by implementing the trade in a way that minimizes risk relative to the same return potential. Thus, Platt will rarely implement directional trade ideas as outright long or short positions. He will be much more likely to use long options or complex spread structures that will provide equivalent return potential, but with theoretically constrained risk. Of course, Platt will strictly limit the maximum loss on any individual position, but he does not stop there. If he feels uncomfortable in a trade after he enters it, he will get right out. Most of the trades that Platt stops himself out of never get to their stop-loss points. If a trade does not work within a reasonable amount of time, Platt will just liquidate rather than give it room to his original stop point. 
Platt also reevaluates each of his positions daily and asks himself whether he would still place the same trade day. If not, he will liquidate it. Perhaps the most potent risk control Platt employs in Bluecrest's discretionary strategy is maintaining an extremely tight rein on what a trader can lose before capital is withdrawn. A mere 3% loss is enough to trigger a 50% reduction in a trader's allocation, and the same small additional percentage loss is all it takes to remove a trader's entire allocation. These rigid rules seek to prevent any trader from losing more than 5% of his initial stake. The combination of two successive 3% losses is less than a 5% loss because the second 3% loss is incurred only on 50% of the starting stake. In his own trading book, Platt is subject to the same rules as his traders, but he has never approached the 3% loss point. You would think that with such extreme loss limitations, it would be very difficult for individual traders, and in turn the strategy, to make much money. It seems that with only 3% leeway before their capital allocation is slashed that traders would be risking too little on their trades to make much of a return. How, then, has the discretionary strategy managed to average nearly a 14% year net return? The key is that the 3% 3% risk rule applies to a trader's starting stake. So certainly the rule encourages traders to be very cautious at the onset, being highly selective in their trades and tightly limiting the loss on any trade. But as traders get ahead... Their cushion widens as trading gains augment the small initial 3% loss allowance. Once they are comfortably in the black, traders can take much more risk, thereby creating the potential to achieve large returns despite the highly restrictive initial loss limitation. Essentially, the trader allocation risk control strategy assures capital preservation while at the same time keeping upside potential open-ended by allowing greater risk-taking with profits. It is effectively an asymmetric risk management strategy. Risk control is important for many obvious reasons, which include avoiding account-incapacitating losses, minimizing emotional pain, and constraining the adverse impact of compounding. Large percentage losses require increasingly greater percentage gains to get back to even. Platt, however, points out a far less obvious reason for avoiding losses. Losing trades mentally impede the trader and often result in missed winning trade opportunities. As Platt colorfully describes the trader's mindset after incurring a foolish loss, you feel like an idiot and you're not in the mood to put anything else on. Then the elephant walks past you while your gun's not loaded. Platt says that trading follows the 80-20 rule. 80% 80 of a trader's profits come from 20% of the trades. If the psychological fallout from a trading loss causes a trader to miss a trade in the 20%, it can be a big deal. Platt pays a lot of attention to how the market responds to news. He cites the interesting observation of a trade in which there was a continuing stream of news items adverse to his position, and yet the market did not move against him. Platt read the inability of the market to respond to the news as confirmation of his trade idea, and he quadrupled his position, turning it into one of his biggest winners ever. Although Bluecrest's systematic trend-following strategy is not in the same return-slash-risk league as the discretionary strategy, it is nonetheless one of the best-performing trend-following strategies, achieving an average annual compounded net return of 16% with a maximum drawdown of under 13%. When queried about how the systematic trend-following strategy achieved its superior performance via v other trend-following strategies, Platt mentioned two key factors. First, their system will liquidate positions when trends get overextended without waiting for trend reversal signals. Second, there is continuous ongoing research and implementation of changes to improve the system. System trading is a dynamic rather than static process.
Platt believes that systems that don't change will eventually degrade. In Platt's words, system trading is a research war. Part 3. Equity. Chapter 9. Steve Clark. Do more of what works and less of what doesn't. Steve Clark's fund, the Omni Global Fund, has achieved remarkable performance consistency. The strategy has been profitable in every year since its inception ten and a half years ago, 2001. The worst year was a 0.7% gain in 2011. Omni's 19.4% average annual compounded return is impressive, but what truly sets Omni apart is that it achieved these strong returns while containing the worst peak-to-valley equity drawdown to a modest 7%. The fund's sharp ratio is an extremely high 1.50. The sharp ratio, however, which makes no distinction between upside and downside volatility, understates the fund's performance because volatility has been heavily skewed to the upside. There have been many months with gains above 4%, and some much higher, but only two months with losses above this level, both less than 5%. As a result of the combination of strong gains and moderate losses, the fund has an extremely high gain-to-pain ratio of 4.1. In 2008, an absolutely disastrous year for event-driven hedge funds, the hedge fund research, HFR, index for this sector was down 22% for the year. Omni was actually up 15%. Warren Buffett has said that it's only when the tide goes out that you discover who's been swimming naked. 2008 made clear that Omni was swimming fully clothed in multiple layers. Steve Clark was brutally honest, probably more so than any other trader I have ever interviewed. He seemed to hold nothing back, whether it was about his past experiences or his feelings. His emotions at times were palpable. His directness made this an unexpectedly compelling interview for me. Clark began our conversation by telling the story from the time he finished school at the age of 17. I did my A-levels a year early and left school at the age of 17. I knew nothing about university. No one in my family had been to university. You came from a working-class background? I was the third generation, all living in the same council house. Government housing is what I guess you would call in the U.S., on the outskirts of London. I didn't know my father, and he didn't hang around. I lived with my mother, brother, and grandparents. My mother was always working, so I was sort of half-raised by my grandparents. One day I got a call from Grant, a school friend who now works here, a call for which I am eternally grateful. He was considered one of the posh kids at school because his parents actually owned their house. You should come and work in the city, Grant said. There are 25-year-olds earning 50,000 pounds. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I thought I would go there and earned some money until I decided what I wanted to be when I grew up. I'm still waiting. I naively thought, okay, I will go to work in the city then and be a trader. I didn't even know what a trader was. Was Grant working as a trader? He was working as a trading assistant. I had no concept what that meant either. What were you doing at the time? I was working for a hi-fi installation company. I was designing the layout of home stereo system installations, lifting things, and driving a van. Did you try to get a job in the city? I wrote lots and lots of places and always got the same answer. No degree, no interview, or no experience, no interview. That is exactly what I would have expected. I did get one interview for a back office job at Manufacturers Hanover. I had a terrible interview. I talked about how I wanted to be a trader 
with absolutely no thought given to the fact that the fellow interviewing me wanted somebody to work in the back office. Needless to say, I didn't get the job, but I learned from that interview process. I realized that the sensible thing to do was to get some experience. At the time, this was 1986, there was a shortage of back office people. I got a job as a temporary filing clerk and then moved to different temporary jobs, each time embroidering my CV. Anytime I was offered a position and asked if I could do it, I said that I could. I figured that I could learn how to do it once I was at the job. I did that for several months, and then I got two permanent job offers. One was from Merrill Lynch to run part of the back office, which paid 30,000 pounds, and the other was from Warburg Securities to be a blue button. What is a blue button? On the stock exchange floor, you had badges with your firm written on it and a number. The color of your badge indicated your role. Blue buttons were boys who were trainees, but who in reality were treated as slaves. The blue button job paid 7,000 pounds, so it was 30,000 pounds on the left hand versus 7,000 pounds on the right hand, but the 7,000 pound job got you on the trading floor. I thought that was clearly the place I needed to be. I still remember my interview for the job. The guy asked me about what relevant experience I had. I certainly knew nothing. I didn't read the Financial Times, and I didn't pretend to read the Financial Times. The only clever answer I gave was when he asked me whether I ever gambled. I asked, do you mean like gambling on the horses? He answered, yes, exactly. I replied, I would never bet on anything where the odds were against me. Why would you do that? I didn't know whether that was the right answer or the wrong answer, but it was my instinctive answer. I got the job. I started on South African gold shares, and literally my job was to get tea, coffee, sandwiches, book trades, and answer the phone. I really had a miserable time on the first desk I was on. I couldn't understand what was going on, and no one was willing to answer a question or teach me anything. It was a very poor experience. But I was a very good blue button. I was very good at doing the P&Ls. I got transferred to the European desk, where the people had a completely different attitude. They were very happy to talk to me and to teach me. At what point were you allowed to trade? After I was there for about one year, I was given the Scandinavian market-making book. I was going to run the book for one week because the trader was on holiday. This first week that I was given a book to run on my own was the week of the October 1987 crash. So literally, October 19, 1987 was the first day you were allowed to trade. Yes. That has to be the most interesting trading start date I have ever heard, or I'm sure that I will ever hear. At least you had no positions coming in. Oh, no, I took over the book. And your boss was incommunicado? He was on holiday. The previous week we had been told that we would be receiving a large institutional buy order for a basket of stocks. The trader I worked for had bought those stocks in anticipation of buying support. So I came in Monday morning long only. The most vivid memory I have of the day is making a price in a stock called Electrolux. I get a call asking for a price on Electrolux. I say they are 43 bid, 44 offered. He offers 10,000 shares at 43. I buy 2,500 shares and put the phone down. I then change my price to 42.5 bid, 43.5 offered. The phone rings again, and I give the caller my new quote. He offers 10,000 shares, and I buy 2,500 at 42.5. I reasoned that if I drop my price by a full dollar to forty-one and a half, forty-two and a half, and I get hit on the offer, I would be selling my shares at a loss. This is how I was thinking on the morning of the crash. So I set the price at forty-two, forty-three. 
The phone rings, and once again I get a hit with an offer, so I bought another 2,500 shares at 42. At this point, I turn around to the German trader, who, unlike me, had lots of experience, and show him my trades and say, I've done these trades, what price should I make now? He looks at me like I am a complete imbecile. Meanwhile, the phone is ringing. He picks up the phone. I was going to make the next price 41 and a half, 42 and a half. He makes the price 36, 37, and still gets hit with an offer at 36. So I had been making the totally wrong prices. I had no clue to what was going on, but I learned a very valuable lesson from that experience. The price is where anyone is prepared to deal, and it can be anything. I had one year of experience, and I had seen only a limited amount of volatility. In my mind, I couldn't comprehend changing the price by more than $1, let alone $6, which is nearly a 15% change. I had never witnessed that before. Actually, not many people had ever seen anything similar before. Where was the market price? You weren't determining the market price, were you? Oh, I was determining the price. All the systems were down, so I was getting calls from people asking me the price. Weren't other people making a market in the stock? There were other market makers, but you couldn't see their prices. So the German trader understood the market was falling out of bed. After he looked at my trades, he told me, Your position is growing. You cannot afford to let your next trade be a purchase. Whatever you have to do, you need to make sure that your next trade is a sell. He quoted the price down by $6 and still ended up buying. What about the long inventory you came in with at the start of the day? You couldn't do anything that day. You just had to ride the whole thing down. What about people who called wanting to sell? As a market maker, did you have to facilitate the trade? You just quoted the prices down to a point where you didn't buy anymore. So after those initial trades at the wrong price, you didn't do much at all. I guess you just quoted prices down far enough to make sure you wouldn't get any more sell orders. That is exactly right. My book, the book I had taken over for the week, lost several million pounds that day. The German trader was short everything, so he made several million pounds. He sounds like a smart fellow. He was a smart guy. Years later, I employed him. Actually, years later, I also employed the trader who ran the Scandinavian book, who was my boss. From that point on, I began to trade other books in the European area, where people were on holiday. I eventually became the most profitable trader in the group. How? What were you doing that made you so profitable? I was very proactive in orientating the book. If I was in something that was wrong, I would cut it. I wouldn't defend it. I wouldn't average down. I would just cut it, cut it, cut it. What does being proactive mean for a market maker? I was very active in positioning myself. I would trade around news, trying to orient myself on the right side of market. I would develop my own views on stocks and be happy to run with those views. Also, I was so inexperienced that I didn't have the fear, the fear that cripples people who have been in the business too long. I have seen that so many times. Very few people maintain their ability to take risk throughout their career. Most don't. Most can't. They have had too many bad things happen to them, too many fat tails, and it damages people. Not having fear and cutting positions when they are going against you speaks to a willingness to take a risk and an ability to control risk. But to make money, you still have to be on the right side of the market, which raises the question, how are you calling the directional moves to have some sort of an edge? You have to go back to the facts. What do you know? 
if you know there is a buyer for XYZ stock at some price below the market, you know one fact. You know there is a buyer there. What else do you know? Go back and see what happened the last time the market got to this level. You can look at the chart. I also used volume as a screen for what stocks I should be looking at. My thought process would be, there is lots of volume, something is going on. Can I develop a view from that? How important were charts to your trading? Charts are simply a record of how things have traded in the past. That's it. I'm not a big believer in chart analysis. It is extremely appealing to think that you can take a data set from the past and predict what will happen in the future. It is very attractive because as a human being, you are always looking for certainty. You can use charts to give you a plus or a minus towards your view, but you can never start with a chart. To say that you can predict the future from past data is patently untrue. You can talk about percentage probabilities of what might happen next, but you can't go any further than that. So I would combine the charts with other facts, such as what I knew about where the orders were and the market volume. How long were you a market maker for Warburg Securities? I stayed for two and a half years. I left because I was only being paid £13,000 per year, and I was clearly the best trader they had in that area. Lehman Brothers offered me a job for £50,000 per year. I went back to Warburg and told him that I was leaving because I had a much better offer. They said, we can put you at £28,000. I said, why £28,000? Why not £50,000? Well, they said, we have all these tiers and you are a trainee. I thought that was total bullshit. They could do whatever they wanted, so I went to Lehman Brothers. Here's where it gets interesting. Warburg was number one rated. I came from a place where you were imbued with the feeling that you were the best. I went to Lehman Brothers, and I couldn't make a penny. Why is that? Because I had no idea how to make money outside of the Warburg environment, which was so rich in order flow information. So, going back to the question I originally asked you, was the edge then coming from knowledge of where the orders were? The opportunity to make money was there because of the franchise, but the fact that I was making multiples of the people around me indicated that I was doing something better than they were. You were using that order flow information better. But it must be very helpful to know that there are a lot of buy orders below the market, and if you are long and wrong, the stock should run into buying support, and you shouldn't get hurt much. Yes, it's a nice, comfortable place to be. But if you have no idea where the orders are, it's not quite so easy. Was that a revelation? Oh, totally. I was so happy at Warburg. I loved going to work. I didn't want to leave, but I thought I had to. I've always been driven to be rational. 50,000 pounds versus 28,000 pounds, I had to go. The decision was so clear. So I went to Lehman, and I couldn't make any money. It was a terrible shock to my ego. I began to doubt my ability. It was a very depressing time. It lasted for several months. I've seen this happen to many traders, and I have gone through it several times myself. When you find that you can't make any money, smaller and smaller losses take on greater and greater emotional significance, and you lose all perspective. I can remember this incident very clearly. I was playing basketball one night, and I got a call from our New York office to tell me that there had been a big move in Novo, a Danish company, which was one of the European stocks I covered. It was up $2 from the European close. I asked if the stock was bid. He said there was 100,000 shares bid. As a gut reaction, I went short the entire amount. It was the biggest position I had taken by a mile. But since you were so gun-shy, why would you take on a position that large? 
I reverted to my old Warburg mode when my brain would have calculated the risk and just done the trade. Why did you think it was a good risk? It was up $2 from the close, which was a big move for a stock that didn't move that much. It was just a gut reaction. I came in the next morning and bought the stock back for a $100,000 turn. From that moment on, I couldn't stop making money. I guess because you got your confidence back. But you still had no order flow to work against, so where was your edge? I developed very strong relationships with other brokers, so I used their order flow information. I was also trading news flow. What would determine if you were a buyer or seller after a news item hit? It was a matter of sampling views of brokers that I trusted. I've always thought that when you are trading over a short to medium term, your own views on the fundamentals of a story are totally irrelevant. What you have to do is gauge what the market thinks of the story. I would sample opinions, and if there were enough people saying that we were going to see buying on the back of the news item, I would go long. If I didn't see momentum develop, I would cut it, and if I did see upward momentum, I might increase the position size. I am a big believer in buying on the way up. So you were speaking to people who you thought were more right than wrong? Yes, and they had order flow. That was one element of my trading. I also started to screen for volume. I thought that my trading was good enough so that if I could find volume or a story, I could trade it. I was trading successfully, and then I read your book, Market Wizards. It was a seminal moment in my trading career. I was reading about people in your book and thinking, that is what I do. That is one of my rules. It was like these people had copied what I do. How could they know? It was an awakening because for the first time in my life, I realized that I had a method. Up until that point, I thought I was playing a video game, and I couldn't believe I was getting paid to do it. I enjoyed it so much that I would have done it for nothing. The one thing that I really took away from your book was that once you understand you have a method, you can tweak that method. Time and time again, I give traders who work for me one piece of advice. Do more of what works and less of what doesn't. Young traders come to me and say, Well, I've been running this book, and these things have been going really well, but I keep losing money on this. I tell them to just stop doing the things that are not working. Dissect your P&L and see what works for you and what doesn't. It is a very interesting process to analyze where your profits come from, and traders often don't know. How did that advice apply to you at the time? I decided to look at what I did as a trader. Where did I make money? That was the point at which I started to move to event-driven trading. Where were you making money? I had a series of trades where I had an edge. They were arbitrages. So I started looking for more arbitrage trades. You were doing best in arbitrage trades, so you focused on arbitrage. Where were you not doing well? I wasn't doing badly anywhere, but the arbitrage trades were by far the most consistent and profitable. There was really only one trade at the time where I took a big loss, and it was strictly hubris. The stock was 1912DS, a Danish shipping company which traded at an extremely high share price of 140,000 Danish kroner. It traded in lots of one share or five shares. For some reason, I had become bullish on the stock and bought a lot of it. Then there was an article in the paper that said the company was a fraud. I had bought the stock at 140,000. It opened the next day at 100,000 offered and nothing bid. I remember the sick feeling in my stomach that morning. I worked out what the loss was at a price of 100000 and thought, that's too big, I can't show that today. So what I did was write down the price of that stock a little bit every day for the next three months, while I traded as hard as I could to make money. So the stock didn't trade. 
There were literally no trades for a long time. There were no bids. Wasn't there a settlement price anywhere? No, this was the Wild West. Traders marked their own book. No one checked it. Smoothing losses was the status quo. How much was the ultimate loss? I don't remember exactly, but I sold it somewhere higher than 100000 So the company wasn't a fraud then? No, the article turned out to be total nonsense. That trade taught me a very valuable lesson. Price is irrelevant. It is size that kills you. If you are too big in an illiquid stock, there is no way out. I wanted to cut the position, but I couldn't. The other lesson this trade taught me is to focus on what works. The trade was just a punt. I bought it because I thought the momentum would carry it up. After that trade, I became much more focused on just looking for arbitrage trades, which was where I was making most of my money. How did you make a transition from a market maker role to a hedge fund manager? After Lehman, I switched to NatWest. It was the same job, but a much bigger business. I was hired to run market making for international shares. After three years there, I got bored, and I also wanted to make more money. I told them that I was leaving to set up a hedge fund. I really had no concept of what setting up a hedge fund involved, but I figured whatever it was, I could do it. They told me if I left then, I wouldn't get my bonus. But I didn't care. I found a hedge fund manager who said he would seed me with $5 million. I then spent several months getting the hedge fund set up. By the time I was done and ready to go, he wouldn't return my phone calls. He had been annihilated by the bond market in 1994 and had lost most of his assets. He clearly wasn't going to speak to me, so I had a hedge fund with no assets. Didn't you think about where you would raise the money before you decided to leave NatWest to start a hedge fund? No. You just figured you would open a hedge fund and money would come. That absolutely was my attitude. When I decided to go work in the city, I had no idea what that meant, but I resolved that I would just go and do it. How hard could it be? I figured it couldn't be that hard, and ultimately it wasn't that hard. It was the same with starting a hedge fund. I just figured I would do it. It never occurred to me I wouldn't be able to raise any money. I didn't think I needed a lot of money because I had no concept of leverage. I knew I could get ten times leverage. So if I wanted to trade a $50 million book, all I would need would be $5 million. It didn't occur to me that people wouldn't want you running money at ten times leverage. I really was completely naive about the whole thing. I just did it. I set up a hedge fund with no money. I had $300,000 of my own cash in the fund, and that was it. What was the name of your hedge fund? It was LS Asset Management. What did the LS stand for? Now there is an interesting tale. We had a nickname at the time for people who threw money around, Larry Shag. Larry Shag? It was a market term for a bit of a player, someone brash, exactly the wrong image you would want to give investors if you're asking to manage their money. It worked well, though, because I could always tell people the LS stood for long short. Sort of like someone who is a shooter. Yes, we'll have a go at this, we'll have a go at that. Were you able to start trading the fund with just your own $300,000? Yes, but it meant that every trade I did would have to be for $300,000. I couldn't trade any smaller. I ran the hedge fund out of my kitchen. Morgan Stanley gave me a prime brokerage account for which I am forever grateful. It was one of the best and worst experiences in business I have ever had. Sounds a bit Dickensian. It was a fantastic learning experience, but I would have much preferred to read about it. Emotionally, the highs got lower and the lows became incredibly low. Specifically, what happened? 
let me give you the story of the first day. You are really one for memorable first days. On my first day, I did my first trade, and I made 37,000 pounds, or about $60,000, on my $300,000 cash. I walked out of the kitchen and said to my wife at the time, I just made 37,000 pounds. It is going to be a success. I don't have to worry about the seed capital. If I can keep compounding like this, we'll be in great shape. She said, that is really good, but garbage collection is happening in ten minutes. If you don't get the bins down to the bottom of the drive in time, we're going to miss it and we'll have all the garbage in the garden for the next week. I remember literally answering, but I am a master of the universe. She said, yes, and you now have eight minutes to get the rubbish down to the bottom of the driveway. I remember walking down the garden, carrying the garbage bags, and muttering to myself, I am a fucking master of the fucking universe. I just made fucking 37,000 pounds, and I am carrying the fucking rubbish out. That was the high point of my experience the first time I read a hedge fund. That was as good as it ever got. What went wrong? After that, I made some money and lost some money, and then, I don't know if I should go into this. Don't worry, we can always take it out if it's a problem. I worked very closely with a guy when I was at NatWest, and he really stitched me. He strongly recommended that I buy a stock, which I did buy. The next day, the stock had a big loss. I waited for a phone call from him, but it never came. Eventually, I called him and asked him what was going on with the stock he had recommended. He said he had been selling the stock all day. He just stitched me. That was a bad experience. What do you mean he stitched you? He recommended buying the stock, which I did. The next day, he smashed the stock. When you say stitched you, you mean he set you up? Yes, I thought he was a friend, but he wasn't a friend. Some people who you work with for years and think will support you will do nothing to help you, while other people you know in passing may be very helpful. It really taught me a lot about human nature and made me think again about whom you can and can't trust. How much did you lose on that stock tip? Did you lose as much as you made on the big trade on the first day? I lost more than that. The fund had been running a few months, and I was going to show a 10% loss as of the end of the month. There was a total disconnect between my feelings and reality. In my head, if I was down 10%, my business would be over. No one would ever give me money to manage. I had no perspective. I had no older person to put his hand on my shoulder and say, Calm down, just do the things that work and stop doing the things that don't. I can remember sitting at the kitchen table, my head in my hands, staring into an abyss. I put so much pressure on myself to make money every day. I must make money. I must make money. I must make money. And I was having a very hard time making money in the market. It felt like the market was kicking me around. I woke up one morning around 4 a.m., lying in bed, feeling sick in my stomach, and thinking, what is the market going to do to me today? I closed the business that day. It was an incredibly tough experience. If only I had had someone give me perspective and say, slow down. You're not trying to make 500%. Stop thinking in absolute terms and start thinking in terms of percentages. What did you do after you closed your fund? I went to Nomura, where I started a risk arbitrage business. What was your approach to risk arbitrage? Do fewer deals and be bigger. If you have a big enough balance sheet, buy enough shares to be sure you have enough votes. If you thought you needed 8% of shares to assure the approval of the merger plan, you might as well buy 15% because you knew the deal would be going through. Just be big. That was a very successful approach. But you still have other risks in the deal going through, like failure to get government approval. 
I would tend to be big late in the deal when those other risks had been ticked off. All we were ever concerned about was the likelihood of the deal closing. The spread margins were secondary. Parents buying out subsidiaries were by far the best trade. There were no due diligence issues, and you knew the deal would be going through. Nomura ended badly for me because there was a change in management. The new guy in charge wasn't straight. He had a convertible book, and all he was doing was buying illiquid convertible bonds and every month and pushing the price up. He was the market because he owned most of these issues. So all he had to do was buy a few hundred bonds every month to push the price up. At one point, a trader from another department came to me for guidance because he was being asked to mismark the book. Was he a subordinate? He was subordinate to one of the other managers. Why did he come to you? Because I had a reputation for being straight. I told him to mark the book correctly and I would deal with it. I went to the senior management and said they couldn't put pressure on this guy to mismark his book. He was a lowly trader. If it ever came out, it could ruin his career. I told them they had to leave the bookmark correctly. I thought it was a cogent argument. A week later, I was asked to leave because I was not a team player. I told them if they wanted to fire me, that was fine, but they needed to pay me the percentage I was owed. They wanted me to resign first, and then they would pay me afterwards. I asked them, do I have the word stupid written across my forehead? 